Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of The Bucket Problem. This is Episode 7. We are brought to you, as always, by Homefield Apparel. I will get it out of the way right now. Use promo code BUCKETPROBLEM at homefieldapparel.com for 15% off your first order. We have a very special guest today. I am excited to bring him on for a pre-taped interview, I'll admit, in a moment. I want to preface uh, that by saying that we delve into a lot of different complicated uh, kind of philosophical topics about the state of college football, the state of the Michigan football program, realignment, a whole bunch of stuff. There's a mention at the beginning of Emco Blog, which is obviously my former employer. We are not trying to reheat old beef. This is not a personal thing. This is a discussion about uh, different philosophies of how uh, people approach recruiting in 2013, uh, since this is uh, this ties back to a pretty specific recruitment. So uh, I just wanted to get that out of the way, and it leads into a conversation about why Stephen Godfrey supposedly hates your team. And you may be surprised to learn that he may not, and that is my guest today, Stephen Godfrey of Secret Base and Split Zone Duo. Bombs away, everybody. This man needs very little introduction from Secret Base, a frequent, I'll go with quote-unquote, guest on the great podcast Split Zone Duo. He hates your team, and quite possibly, especially this one. Stephen Godfrey, how you doing? I'm good. I think we've discussed. I think we've discussed this before on Twitter, but I did find out that one of my grandparents was born in Michigan and was kind of raised there. So you you have a little bit, a little bit of yeah. Michigan in you, and uh, I guess I have to. So I guess I have to let all this go. Yeah, I mean, before we dig in, where did the like Godfrey hates Michigan thing originate? Originate? Because I I seriously uh, do not remember. I hope I'm not putting anybody on blast here. No, just Imgo blog and um, the. Um, the shortest version was obviously I was doing a lot of coverage on, you know, the black market in college football. And I guess there was a, a consortium of Michigan fans led by, and I know like you used to work at MGO blog. So, you know, yeah, let me know where, let me know if I'm rubbing against the rail. Um, and they kind of seized upon it as if I was giving, it, it's kind of like, so my dad's an FBI agent and he won't watch mob movies cause he thinks they glorify the mob. Mm-hmm. And that's the best example I can give you as to like, I think Imgo blog and that culture got really, really, really frustrated with me because they thought I was glorifying the mob. Um, but I do think that college football is so incredibly different and diverse as you go to different leagues and parts of the country that like, it's just much more a matter of fact in the South, not about the cheating part, but just about the economic disparity with the labor in college athletics that it, the, the, um, I think the barometer doesn't read the same way when you look culturally at some of the small towns in the South and what goes on and who's doing it. So it started that way. I had never really thought one way or the other about Michigan um, in terms of partisanship. Um, you know, I have no personal, I have no, I'm trying to think I have no family big team connection whatsoever. Obviously I'm from the South. Um, we're, we're both friends with home field. So I guess we're all, we're all default Indiana fans, right? Yes, absolutely. At this point, I'm I'm um, about ready yeah. to ditch Michigan. So, <laughs> um, no, I always loved the helmets and was cool with the tradition, and never really thought one way or the other about it. But then it was, it, then it became, and I have learned this. And and, and so the bit about Stephen Godfrey hates my team was born on the, 
the very first podcast I did with Bill Connolly, where we would we would occasionally just take apart a lot of sort of sacred cow ideas about larger programs, and I think that's where it started. And whereas Bill was much more sober and sort of uh, methodical using the numbers, I would try and slaughter you know the bigger preconceptions uh, about particular programs in an effort to to just be as honest as possible about college football. So I think it started there. Um, but then it was a like a concerted effort from Michigan fans, uh, this one consortium of Michigan fans who thought that like, you know, some kids so ridiculously below the poverty line in like the Mississippi Delta or the Florida Panhandle would get twenty thousand dollars to go play football was some sort of like moral crime, um, and it kind of grew from there. Um, but one thing that I think holds true for Michigan, as does Ohio State or Florida or Georgia or Texas or anyone else, is that these incredibly large brands have a very diverse ecosystem of fans. Um, and I think you and I have talked a little bit about this on social media. There are entire class structures of Michigan fans. There are entire class structures of Ohio State and Penn State fans. And so I quickly learned that there was it was this one sort of aging out particular sort of pearl-clutching group of diehard Michigan fans that you know, thought I was re- not responsible for, but sort of aiding in, you know, the, the cheater, so to speak. And then every time, as you know, certainly you've dealt with this on Twitter and social media, is if if you if you can kind of master the art of the reply when they come for you angrily and they're, they're clutching those pearls, you can usually turn it back around on them and make it funny. And I just kept doing that and doing that and doing that, and I think that's where the Michigan thing was born. But I have absolutely no personal... <laughs> Nothing personal against Michigan whatsoever in terms of a football program. Uh, I, I think a lot of it may have come from uh, a certain level of saltiness about specifically Laquan Treadwell. Like- mm. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so uh, so I did go to Ole Miss, obviously, and um, but I'm not from Mississippi, and and it's one of the things I always point out because I don't know if there's a comp here for Michigan or for that part of the country. But when you have a closed society like that, where you don't get a lot of people coming in on a white collar or blue collar or, or really any level ethnicity whatsoever, like like not a lot of people moved to Mississippi for work. I, my family did. My dad was in the FBI. And so I finished high school there, went to college there because it was a free degree, promptly lost all that, got kicked out of college a bunch, uh, which is always fun when you make like a, like a, a devout Michigan man who's like some fancy lawyer, investment banker, mad on Twitter. And I'm like, dude, I got kicked out of Ole Miss twice. And I'm completely <laughs> owning your ass. You need to reevaluate. Um, in Mississippi, it's just I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this. Um, the Laquan Treadwell thing became like the point of a spear that I didn't really know. I didn't know what was happening at the time. I went to, as I, as the NCAA investigation started in earnest with Ole Miss and then Mississippi state, and then it spread out, uh, you know, the Treadwell name came up really, really only comes up a little bit in in the actual Hugh Freeze sort of saga. But what I didn't know, and this was help me out here. This is pre Harbaugh, Mm -hmm. right? This is a, he was a Hoke recruit, if I recall, right? Yes. Yes. This was like peak Hoke recruiting. And and he was, I mean, he was going after Tunsil too. I mean, he was, he was taking some big swings. I remember Treadwell was from Illinois. Yeah. And I remember at the time, and I never really covered recruiting in my career. And I think it's funny, like I would rather cover, <laughs> I would rather cover dirty boosters than I would recruiting because I think dirty boosters are more honest than the entire recruiting industry is. I would agree. That and I, I, athletes, the families, the outlets, yeah, like all of it, like like a dirty booster will is signaling their their actual intent to you. 
they, they can't help but tell you the truth or how they actually feel. They're very bad at being deceptive, to be honest. Um, but anyway, I knew that. I remember he was from Illinois. And the only thing I can remember at the time, honestly, was that, like, Freeze had come in. And, and, and keep in mind how fast we move in terms of, like, college football, philosophy, in terms of, like, offensive and defensive schematic philosophy. Mm-hmm. Because Michigan is now running basically what Hugh Freeze was running then. Um, yeah, at the time, it was a big deal because it was basically like him and Gus Malzahn, and that they were like on the edge of something. We're gonna go fast, and we're gonna we're gonna run this up tempo sort of spread that has versions of zone, uh, you know, spread option, and so it borrows a little bit from the Meyer tree, and then oh, it also has like air raid sensibility. You know, this was all fancy fancy stuff at the time. Of course, now literally every I think every college offense runs some version of this. You can even see it at freaking Stanford sometimes. So. Uh, at the time, that was a big deal, and Treadwell, I think, like, there was a genuine incentive for him to play in a, in a system like that, and then the other thing was, I remember there were, st- <laughs> stop me if you've heard this before, there were struggles with the Michigan offense, <laughs> and he ended up there, and he was not the crown of that class, obviously the crown of that class were the, was the second Kadiji brother, and then Laramie Tunsil, which was he was sort of the focus of the documentary I made about the NCAA investigation. But anyway, yeah, so the Treadwell thing, I think, had really like caused a snag for Michigan fans. They felt like yeah. Treadwell was an example. And this is a good, this is a good conversation. Talk. It doesn't have anything to do with realignment or 2021, but um, Laquan Treadwell was evidence to Michigan fans that the system will always be against us because we're, we're quote unquote, we're playing the game the right way. We're playing recruiting the right way. And this school down in Mississippi that has an inferior education to offer and an inferior everything to offer, except for this one football part, um, it's it's we we as Michigan fans cannot fathom why this individual would do this. And what I would say is I'm not trying to argue why. Like let me tell you right now, I'd rather have a degree from Michigan than Ole Miss. I'd rather have a degree from Vanderbilt than Ole Miss. I, I mean, I don't really. It doesn't really matter for what I do. Like I'm not slicing into anyone's brain or building a jet engine, but like. Yeah, there, there's no argument on the educational side. But what I would ask Michigan fans to do in that in that circumstance is maybe think about why he did that and not think about it as, as something as simple as, oh, he got paid off. I'm sure Laquan Treadwell got paid off while he was at Ole Miss. He was not the focus of the NCAA investigation. So whatever did or didn't happen with him doesn't really actually make it into the notice of infractions all that much. Like I said, his name shows up a couple times, but a lot of people's names do. I, I if I'm, a, if I'm a Michigan fan, I would just sort of preach to you, look at environmentally what's being offered here to someone who is from a small part of the country, who is black, who is suspicious of organi- organizations in general, who is who is in his ear, why are they in his ear, why are they able to be in his ear, and then look at the system, the apparatus. I'm not trying to absolve any institution or any individual of wrongdoing, but I'm saying that when you see the rules broken so consistently that they are essentially functional – then it, it's it's less a moral issue than it is an engineering problem. So one of my coworkers at Banner Society, RIP, was a guy named is a, is a guy named Brian Floyd, um, and he has a management information system background from Washington State. And so he has this great picture he showed me one time where he's like, "This is an engineering failure," and it's a picture of two sidewalks meeting at a ninety degree angle, but then the grass next to them is completely worn off at an angle at a forty five mm-hmm. degree angle, and that's an engineering failure. And what that means is everyone is just walking through the corner rather than the sidewalk doing its job, that is as rough as a, a crappy podcast metaphor as I can give you to, as to like what we were trying to accomplish by writing about the dirty boosters and all this kind of stuff was that, that this stuff is so systematic 
in areas of the country where the economics are out of whack, that it is just part of life. And it's not, we don't think of it as a moral referendum. We just think of it as a function. And, and should we be that complacent about it? I don't know. I lean, I lean towards no. Obviously, there's a lot, you know, a lot has changed with NIL. But yeah, there's my background. I don't actually care one way or the other about Michigan football. I, I am glad you brought up the sidewalk metaphor because that is there is a corner like that in Ann Arbor, and I feel like Michigan fans, or at least like the stereotypical Michigan fan, because like you said, you can't really boil it down to one type of fan for a whole ba- fan base. But I think the stereotype no, so many. is is that you know Michigan fans are very proud to have walked along the sidewalk instead of taking the cut through. And mm-hmm. that hasn't been super effective. Um, but I have you on here to talk. Uh, I mean, we will get back around to Michigan, but I, I do want to touch on realignment right now. So if you can give me the quick and dirty version, obviously Texas and Oklahoma now committed to the SEC. What are kind yeah. of the media ramifications of that? And then where do you see it heading long term? I feel very comfortable saying I don't know when I actually don't know something. And I feel like a lot of people in the media feel the need to fill the space because if not, they'll, you know, it's like we're all going to be found out to be frauds. We're already frauds. <laughs> I mean, this is it's an industry filled with imposter syndrome. Um, I don't think anyone accurately knows where this is going because um, it was a it was very much a concentrated event. And and what we what we tend to do is try and identify patterns as fast as we can and then predict according to what the pattern tells us. I don't know if this is a pattern yet. Um, And what here's what I mean by that. So I would say like it broke on a Thursday. What are we coming up on three weeks? Right. So it broke on a Thursday. And by the middle of the following week, like Tuesday or Wednesday, I'm hearing people pass off this idea that like, well, the Big Ten will just take Iowa State and Kansas. And if you can't understand why Iowa State and Kansas are not the same thing as Texas and Oklahoma, (laughs) I can't help you. (laughs) I don't think that that's a smart move for the Big Ten. And that's nothing against Iowa State and Kansas. I think Iowa State is going to be my sympathetic lean for the 2021 season. Like if you ask me, like, who do I want to see in the playoff? I would love if just Iowa State just became an absolute war machine from hell. Um, and just won a bunch of like forgettable games, 17 to 12, 17 to 13, you know, like 14, 10 and won a national title that way. Um, they're definitely, yeah, I definitely have some love for them right now, considering everything else that's going on. Um, you know, so I I say this on our show on split zone and I I say this to anyone who'll listen, don't use the rule set from the previous realignment on the next realignment. It's never the same. Okay. It's always different. So the first time this really happened that people can remember was the establishment of divisions in the SEC championship game in 92. This is in the modern era after the television ruling in 1985. This is when I can start to sort of like, it's a good place to, to, to jump on there in terms of understanding it. So the SEC broke into divisions and added teams because they wanted to establish a conference championship game for the revenue. All right. The next round of realignment was built much, much more on what we call DMAs or just television markets, right? That's the whole joke about Rutgers and Maryland joining the Big Ten, which everyone laughed about. I don't know how many people realize this. SEC fans and ACC fans or anybody else, they laugh about like, oh, the Big Ten took Rutgers and Maryland. Yeah, they did. And they're still making more money off of their television network than anyone else. I think it may pull up even here in the next couple of years. But what they did with Fox 
you know, LHN and Texas sucked up sort of all the attention in the headlines because of how unique a situation that was. But the blueprint and the foundation of the last round of realignment was, was written by the Big Ten in absorbing as many television markets as they could logically. And again, it's not about Maryland owning D.C. I, I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. I can tell you, living on the Virginia side of the D.C. suburbs, that Maryland is not some sort of television draw in that market, right? It doesn't work that way. There's only a handful of college brands north of the Mason-Dixon that do work that way. Michigan is one. Michigan has a hold on the Detroit market. I think we could say that, right? Mm -hmm. But there is no team that has a hold on the New York market. There is no team that has a hold on the D.C. market. It's not how it works. Philly, you could even say the same thing. Penn State does well, but that's a pro sports market. But by doing the expansion part of it and saying, okay, well, we have a team in the DMA, we bring Ohio State in, we bring Michigan in, we encourage these guys to schedule aggressively. So now inside those television markets, you always have activity. And you do have a ton of Michigan, Ohio State, uh, you know, Nebraska, et cetera, et cetera, alumni in New York, D.C., Chicago. Those are the three markets, and I understand where Evanston is on a map. I get it. But, like, those are the three markets where – you don't have a team in the city per se, but you still sort of own the territory, in my opinion. I think Washington still leans a little bit more towards Big Ten um, by virtue of, of the amount of white collar and government jobs that are going on and just the, the migration pattern of what we call Yankees uh, southward. I think they lean a little bit more Big Ten than they, they do ACC. Um, so yeah, it's just an opinion there. But, but they, the Big Ten really wrote the book last time. We don't know what the book's going to look like this time. What Texas and Oklahoma indicate to me is that we're going for something appropriating kind of the raw number. And what I mean by that is like, you know, in the, in the Netflix world, they want you on the platform consuming as much content as possible and, and as many people doing that as possible. It's the big raw number. And so what they're thinking is, is that an SEC app, which is owned by ESPN, is going to absorb more raw viewership if you're cycling Texas and Oklahoma through there in a 16-team conference. So who does that work for in the Big Ten? I'm going to be honest with you right now, and maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong. Is there anyone logically that the that the, the Big Ten, other than Notre Dame, is just dying to absorb? I, I've been trying to think about schools, and even even as a huge basketball fan, I can't quite talk myself into Kansas for the reasons that uh, you outlined or Iowa State for those reasons except even more so and I don't know like I don't even think Pitt's available like it'd be be interesting to give like some natural like a natural rivalry to Penn State but I I just there's no school that I'm clamoring for and even with Notre Dame uh I almost prefer them as an off and on non-conference opponent because I think everyone gets kind of tired of their shit. <laughs> sure. I, I do think from the outside, I think Notre Dame has a value that would fit best, obviously in its natural mm-hmm. footprint. And I know I, like some Notre Dame fans going to come like kicking through the wall and talk about, well, we have annual series with, you know, USC and Stanford. I, I get it. Congrats. We all know how to buy a plane ticket to California, but Notre Dame is in Indiana. Notre Dame is Notre Dame could build a more logical looking schedule using the Big Ten than they could any other conference because it's pretty stupid looking what they're doing now, like playing Wake Forest all the time. So um, 
I think if you had the Irish interested, then you could look at the Kansas. I think basketball would be a huge reason why. I think they do have a, a foothold in Kansas City, and I do think it's a logical extension of the map. I think it would be – it's really funny to me is they just hired a guy for football at Kansas who is going to essentially run a Big Ten West offense and a Big Ten West program, for lack of a better term, to serve as a counterattack to how they've just been failing so consistently in the Big 12, which is a much different looking – football conference and if they went to the big 10 they would just be you know the fourth or fifth best team running that running that system in their own division so it would suck for them but i think for for basketball reasons alone it would make it would make a good amount of sense and i think it would work well too i think kansas fans are basketball fans first and i definitely think they would be okay with going to the big 10 yeah i i mean of the schools that are out there i wouldn't be against it it's uh it just feels like the SEC very much got a jump on everybody by snatching up the two most desirable available schools and what's left out there. I I don't know how it's going to go. No, and I think look at this point, it's okay. It, it's okay for the Big Ten, and maybe this is maybe this is the actual conversation. It's okay to take time and look at this. It's okay to take a step back and examine what's going on. It's it, you don't have to snatch two programs onto your lifeboat. There are plenty of great programs in the footprint. I'm not saying like you can't find better football or better basketball. I mean, Cincinnati would make a ton of sense. Ohio State probably wouldn't allow it, but like, yeah, yeah Cincinnati would be a great fit. Um, the, the, you're literally sitting in, a, in, a, in another television market. I think it would bolster recruiting into the South for you know pretty much everyone that would play Cincinnati. I think it would help. You know, Kentucky is a really interesting area because it's the border of the two strongest conferences in, in, in the sport and the way in which Cincinnati and the University of Kentucky and Louisville and then the Indiana schools are sort of all figuring out the pecking order of recruiting. And I'm blending in three different comp, four different conferences. Um, it's, it, it's an interesting time there. It's something that I would keep an eye on. And it comes all the way down even to where I live in Nashville. Um, it's look, it wouldn't it, it, like Ohio State and Michigan can go recruit anywhere. I don't think it would be uncommon at all to see now Indiana and Purdue coming into Nashville to recruit as well. Yeah, and I don't think people, especially with that, if they add Cincinnati, just I don't think a lot of people from outside the Midwest realize just how close Cincinnati is to just being in Kentucky. So the, well, I, I, so that whole like area. I, I, yeah. yeah, I was just there, and, and it's very common that your hotel is actually in Kentucky to go cover a game. Like to get, so if you if you're not from there, it's the Reds, the Bengals, and then the uh, the multi-use arena just sit right on the water, and then the other side of the water is Kentucky. So it makes it's a very very quick drive from Lexington. It's a very very quick drive from Louisville. Um, this is not something you should really stress or concern yourself with if you are Michigan. You know that's that that's the issue at hand. There are Michigan-centric problems right now that I don't think are going to be affected one way or the other by adding the 15 and the 16. I really don't. I, I don't think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of Michigan-centric problems that really won't matter if there is no Big Ten tomorrow and they're an independent school. I would definitely agree, and that seems like a, a good pivot point to getting your opinion on. I, I first want to ask. Um, I, I know we're running short on time, but if you were in Ward Manuel's position after last season, mm. where you've got Jim Harbaugh on an expiring contract, coming off a two and four COVID-ridden season, you know, obviously has not beaten Ohio State, um, 
and is falling behind a bit in recruiting. Uh, how would you have handled uh, the contract extension versus firing him versus, I mean, whatever Michigan decided to actually do? <laughs> There's so many layers to that, even from the outside. Because of his name, because of the NFL stuff, because of the fact that it's COVID. But I, I kind of linger on that last point because I just don't think 2020 is representative of any team that we saw. Mm-hmm. except maybe the three of the playoff teams. Okay. So I think that like maybe all, maybe all the playoffs, I guess it was just kind of semantic at that point. But you know, when you look at, yeah, I would say all four playoff teams and then pretty much everyone else, I think you, you give them a mulligan up or a mulligan down. And so I, what I mean by that, just so I'm clear is like, I don't think that that was reflective of Michigan as an overall product, but I also don't think that like Colorado is that good. <laughs> You know, I don't. There were a lot of teams that had what I, what amounted to be like a reverse dead cat bounce in 2020, just because of a lot of circumstantial stuff, and that's all going to come back around. Um, it was a weird year, and so I don't know if you you can't really grade them on 2020. I mean, they didn't play the game last year, so um, here's what. Okay, th- this is the best way I can I can speak to this is that I just ask coaches the same question off the record, so mm-hmm. they'll be very honest with me. When I ask Big Ten assistants about this, there isn't a Big Ten assistant that isn't in or that's outside. Every Big Ten, let me say this way, every Big Ten assistant outside of Columbus and Ann Arbor would love to be in Ann Arbor, okay? They would love to have those resources and the brand and all that kind of stuff. The system is not broken. I do think there are broken parts of the system. And so that I guess that's the silver lining there. Um, the, the very sober analysis from a football standpoint is that the man has clearly not managed quarterbacks at all. And that pure, raw, skill position talent and skill position players are just not happening. When when you look objectively at Michigan's defense the entire time Harbaugh's there, or if you look objectively at just both lines, most positions on the field, most Big Ten coaches are going to tell you outside of Ohio State, they're the best, outside of Ohio State. Outside. The problem is, is that we've reduced Michigan to a binary, and that is, did you beat Ohio State? Okay, no, you didn't. And so, therefore, it's a completely different landscape. So, if you want to, for a second, we can move on to the Ohio State part. And then when <laughs> I ask, I said, okay, well, what is the Ohio, what is the Ohio State difference here? Yeah. It's really quarterback. I know that sounds reductive almost. It's so simple. But this is the way it's been explained to me. Because this is the part of the job where, like, I'm not going to pass off like I know what I'm talking about. I'm a reporter. I'm not a, I'm not a coach. And so, I just asked them. And I say they're like, you know, pound for pound, like you would be shocked at how similar these teams have looked, except for dynamic quarterback play. And so that go that now for me, that leans itself more towards, okay, well, are we having a fundamental issue with offensive philosophy, even though Gaddis is there? Because the last time I saw Michigan play in person pre pandemic was um was at it, was at Indiana. We were doing a home field event. And Shea played in that game. Um and you could see pieces, I think, of what Gaddis wanted to do. I don't know if they were ever – I don't know if they're still very, very settled. I, I make a lot of comparisons with Harbaugh and his inability to fully let go and fully embrace a, a new offensive mindset to Kirby Smart in Georgia. This isn't just a Michigan problem. I see that. You see this with big-name legacy coaches and just a an unease in, in completely releasing and letting an offensive philosophy go 180 degrees away from what sort of brought them to the show. So – um, one of the, you know, it's kind of funny, you know, Willie Harbaugh was a, a mentor to Willie Taggart, who I've worked with in the past and written about. And 
he he went through a, a micro version of this when he was at South Florida, and that's how he ended up getting the Oregon job, was just dumping all of the Michigan offense, which then was sort of the Stanford offense, or still sort of considered to be the Stanford offense, because he was in Tampa. And and Tampa, like, these kids from Tampa, and Willie himself is from Bradenton, right? Young black man, coaching young black kids. And they finally came to him and they said, look, you are limiting our ability. Let us show you what we can do. And so they started playing around with some option stuff. They started playing around with some air raid stuff. Willie went to a camp that was run by Kendall Bryles one summer, back when Baylor was still Baylor. And then you started to see the wide receiver splits that looked like Baylor. They were running out of the zone. And all of a sudden it was like, boom. And so I feel like at Michigan, you can't do those things. What I just described can't be so freely adopted at Michigan, which is part of the – but that's Michigan's problem. Yes. Okay, that's not football's problem. The dogma and the the sort of white knuckle grip on what they think is identity. Anytime your identity is that concrete, you're probably going to run into a problem because this sport evolves so quickly and it's reliant on 17-year-olds. And they don't care about your tradition and they don't care about where your mom and dad what dorm they had and they don't care that you that you have a good business school. They don't care. And so that's probably a bigger, you know, I'm jumping ahead, but that's, that's the pox on Michigan. I think, I think the problem is this, it infects the head coach. Who's not a bad head coach. In my opinion, he's dialed a lot of the performative stuff way down in the last couple of years. And I think he's very tactful in doing that. I do, I do think he projects the sort of that weird public character as a, as a means of sidestepping just a, a public obligation. He doesn't have any interest in or doesn't have any value in, which is fine. Like yeah. Saban does a version of it. It's just that Jim's is so idiosyncratic that it seems stranger, which is fine. That's okay. I know a lot of weird coaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think Michigan as a football staff has to change their offensive philosophy and they have to go and find and develop a true five-star quarterback. And I think you would see a world of difference. And it, you may not catch Ohio State because what Ohio State has been able to accomplish in the Big Ten Network era is become a national brand in the way that Michigan could not. And I, I'm not trying, I don't really want to go any further down that road because I'm not trying to get into that. I don't think I have to argue my position because I think the results speak for themselves. No, I don't think you have to on a Michigan podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I think you have to, I think you have to spend, I, I just think most of the Michigan stuff is internal. And look, let me tell you this there are 50, 60 Power Five teams right now who are in the middle of a full blown existential crisis because of what Texas and Oklahoma just did. So consider yourself lucky. I know Michigan is really beating themselves up about some of the things that have gone on with Ohio State or what they what they view to be as an erosion of, of, of a lot of different things and problems or whatever. But, like, I am telling you from the outside with no interest that the Mich- Michigan's problems are fixable by Michigan. You can fix your own problems. I can't say that to a lot of programs in college football. I really can't. So that's the outside. So, I mean, you're – you're poking around at it, but I, I want to try to pull some specifics out if yeah, I can. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I think Harbaugh has a year in front of him where he can show a lot of promise for the future. Mm-hmm. I think there are ways this year with this roster, just from the from the brief amount of like preseason mag looks that I've done at, at Michigan, that there is potential enough to maybe not necessarily beat Ohio State this year or win the Big Ten this year, but to show – uh, a, a a turn towards the future and towards the evolution. I do think that. I do think it's like a Frank Beamer situation. If you're young, go look up and realize how long it took Frank Beamer to actually turn Virginia Tech into a machine. Go look up and see. Well, look, uh, Michigan fans will love this one. Go look and see how long it took John Wooden to get things going at UCLA. <laughs> 
I'm serious. Like, yeah. it's not it, like I'm not saying fire him yet. I will say this: there are three right now coaches that are considered to be the three best available candidates for a top ten job that I've ever seen sitting at their current jobs. I've never seen overripe fruit like this in the coaching tree world because they usually what, what programs usually do is they pick them too green. You get yes. a little redneck here. I apologize. And so you have Matt Campbell, Luke Feckel, and Billy Napier. You are talking this podcast language <laughs> now. Yeah. Billy Napier is not going to be a Big Ten coach. No. Um, and I don't say that, that that's not a pejorative either way against the Big Ten or against Billy Napier. I'm just fit and culture are everything. Billy Napier, who's from who's grew up on the Tennessee Georgia line, is just he he's he's going to be SEC coach one day. We can have a different podcast, and I can try and figure out why he hasn't taken one of the many jobs that's been sort of stealthily offered to him. But he's going to be an SEC head coach. So you're left with two guys. And I think either one would probably have Michigan in a better place than what I've seen pre-pandemic. Yeah, I would agree there. I think Matt Campbell may be one of the best college football coaches we've ever seen. I think Luke Fickle because of the trial by fire he went through at the exact moment in his life and career that he did um, is one of the sharpest and, and one of the most seasoned head coaches, certainly in the group of five. Like there's no question to me. And then you have to deal with the Ohio-ness of it all. And like, I'll leave that to y'all. That's your, that's your cross to bear. I get it. Yes. Um, um, I'm a diehard Atlanta Falcons fan, and we just hired a GM whose last name is Fontenot, and he came from the Saints. <laughs> These things happen, and I, mar- I married a Cajun. I married into a Cajun family. It happens, but um, I'm telling you right now, it would be it would be an. I would say if you're looking at like wins over replacement, yeah, yeah, because in recruiting alone, he's been more effective in Michigan places where Michigan would logically be dominant. How's yes. that work? Yeah, with a brand that is a city school in the group of five. Yeah, I think uh, at least Michigan has positioned themselves where if things go pear-shaped this year, I mean, they're in the thick of the coaching market without much cost to the program at all. Yes. Now, from a, now I will say this. Mm-hmm. There will be – so let's just say that the year goes on, and I don't have their schedule in front of me, but let's say it's enough for them to move on from Harbaugh. I'm going to tell you this right now. There are hidden marks against schools that yes. you don't hear about in the media in, in coaching circles. It's like in the Dust Bowl, homeless people would mark mailboxes where and like only they could see it as like what place would give you food or like stay away, they'll shoot you on sight. Mm-hmm. There will be marks against Michigan in the coaching world because there's going to be a consensus. I'm not trying to say it's right or wrong. I'm just telling you what I know, that the administration won't get out of the way that the dogma of Michigan will weigh you down. But if I'm Matt Campbell, I'd probably smile and take that on. I don't think enough smart people at Michigan, a place filled with supposedly smart people, could get over the Luke Fickleness or the, the Ohio-ness of Luke Fickle. Um, I do think Matt Campbell – I think Matt Campbell would go, obviously. But I will say this. It's a short list for him to leave Ames. It's a way shorter list than people realize. The thing for Fickle is it's about, it's about as short a list for Fickle to leave. If Notre Dame opened uh, – which – I don't anticipate it to open this cycle, mm-hmm. but who knows? We like to say all kinds of fun things in August, don't we? Sure. Um, uh, the, the, it would be bad for Michigan to go through a cycle against Notre Dame. Very bad. 
not so much. I'm not so much saying that as I've got like Michigan on half the board and, and, and Notre Dame on the other, and I'm comparing. I'm talking about the available candidates. Yeah, with Fickle, there's. Uh, I, I mean, I know he's Catholic, and as a has that. Bro, he's got so many. Look, there. There's a point in which you're Catholic. Like I married a Catholic. Mm-hmm. And she was the oldest of four, and I'm just gonna be really honest. If you're listening to this and you're Catholic, you know exactly where this is going. Because I was raised at Protestant. I'm just a white trash cracker. But like, in, like Fickle has so many kids, man. <laughs> that it's like a default Catholic. You're in the bonus, okay? In a basketball sense, you're always in the bonus. Notre Dame's gonna be like, he's got how many kids? And he goes to mass. Oh, sign his ass up because he did what the Pope told him to, which is go forth, go forth and prosper. He's like Jim Harbaugh would be a strong Notre Dame coaching candidate if not for the fact that he has spent his whole life hating Notre Dame. Uh, because he he sent his kids to the to the local Catholic school when he brought them back, uh, and and he's got a number of children. Yeah, I think it's stupidly. I think it might hurt Fickle because they'd be like, "Well, we got BK from Cincinnati. You know, we got an Irish Catholic from Cincinnati already." I'm like, okay, that's one way to look at it. I don't think Fickle's not Irish, but but like it's 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 a stupid way to look at it, but. I do think so. If I'm Michigan tomorrow, and I'm like, first off, I've got to figure out one who's in control, and then I'll give you the saving speech to leave you in a second. But I've got to figure out one who's in control, and then if if I'm going to go back, in my opinion, I'm going one one a Matt Campbell, Luke Fickle. I just don't want to deal with the crap on the Ohio end. So if I'm an AD at Michigan, like if I'm coming in for, as an outsider, which probably won't happen. That's the other problem. Michigan's there's too many insiders. I'm going to go to Matt Campbell and just say, like, okay, what do, what do we got to take to get this done? But I'm also going to have to listen long and hard at what Matt Campbell and people in the coaching community and the agent community say, well, here's the, here are our concerns about Michigan. You know, that, that stuff has to be addressed. Um, I will leave you with this. Yes. This is a famous speech in the South called The Tip of the Spear. It's not quoted. It, it's like sort of a campfire story. I do think that some of it is apocryphal. But Tip of the Spear refers to when Nick Saban got to Tuscaloosa. And if you're a certain age, you remember that Alabama was far from a, a given anything before mm-hmm. Nick Saban got there. They were laughable. They were a brand living on its former glories with a really recognizable logo, a ton of history, a reverence to a dead coach, and a belief that they were better than everyone else. Stop me if this sounds familiar, guys. <laughs> when they got Nick Saban to come from the Miami Dolphins, one of the things that he did immediately, which he's so amazing at, is he's it's basically a brutal systems analysis. Um, he maintains and, and, and just demands that everything will be run through him in some way, shape, or form. He's a man built by micromanaging, and it's worked for him. It doesn't work for most people, and it's why most of his assistants fail, is they try and replicate a particular kind of signature that only he can perform. But in the process of micromanaging the situation in Alabama, what he realized was how many cooks are in the kitchen in terms of boosters, in terms of athletics officials, in terms of in the South, we just sort of say big swinging dicks, right? So you go to Mobile and Mobile thinks they run it. You go to Birmingham, Birmingham thinks they run it. And you got these guys up in Huntsville, da, 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 da. Everything was unorganized. And part of the reason why Mike Shula was swallowed whole was basically he never had control of the program and he didn't have the foresight to stop the potential infighting and basically all of the sort of palace drama. You following me so far? Absolutely. Okay. By the way, also, this works for Texas. So if you have Texas <laughs> friends, you can just give them this speech as well. And what Saban basically unofficially does is he goes from sort of group to group and says, Hi, I'm Nick Saban. I'm the head coach of Alabama football. If you want to win national championships, you will get in line. 
And the message is sent either from Saban directly to these individuals or from Saban's people directly to these individuals. And this doesn't happen overnight, but this happens throughout the course of the first calendar year that he's there, that he is the tip of the spear. If something happens in Alabama, it's because Nick Saban wants it to happen. If something is asked, it's because Nick Saban is asking for it. If there's a demand, if there's uh, a need to get involved, you have to go through Nick Saban. Now, that sounds dumb. What I'm telling you shouldn't sound revelatory. That seems logical. You would be shocked at how many people who write a check either above the board or below it, either their name's on a building somewhere in the SEC or their name isn't on any building, but it's, you know there's cash being handed under the table. Those people think they own more of the operation than they actually do. That creates a cultural rot. Michigan probably doesn't have that problem exactly because, you know, everyone's a do-gooder. Yeah. In other aspects, yes. Michigan has way, way, way too much internal strife and way too many cooks in the kitchen. I can tell you that from hundreds and hundreds of miles away, I can just kind of lean out my window and go, yep, that's the problem right there. You need an individual, be it Matt Campbell or Coach X in three years, to come in and say, I am the tip of the spear. Because if you are so ardent and so passionate about the team, the team, the team, that only works because there was one person in charge of the team. That's it. That's how college football works. It's not ideal. It creates its own problems. We can get into that as well. Michigan is dealing with those, yes. (laughs) Yes. But the success model is pretty much that's the only real blueprint I've ever seen work, at least at this level. So I leave Michigan fans with that. Yeah, and, you know, there, there have been uh, a lot of signs, both you can get them from far away and you can get them from up close, that uh, things have been quite disorganized under Harbaugh. And some of that is Harbaugh and some of that is the athletic department. And we'll see how it develops from there. But uh, Stephen Godfrey, you've given me over twice the amount of time you said you were available for. So oh, I've got a staff meeting in two minutes. So it's worked out perfectly. This, this is great. Um, very quickly, you've got... You've got that amount of time if you want to plug your work. Where can we find you? Uh, I work for Secret Base at Vox Media. That's at Secret Base on Twitter. Um, and then also I co-host a podcast called Split Zone Duo. That's at Split Zone Duo. You can go to splitzoneduo.com and become a patron where we will talk as much Michigan as we will talk Eastern Michigan on our podcast. It's a, it's a psychotic culture. I'll put it that way. And it's a fantastic podcast and as a michigan fan i appreciate hearing as much about eastern michigan as i do about michigan on the show so yeah love ypsilanti absolutely lived there for six years might might be heading back soon it's it's a wonderful place um thanks again godfrey uh enjoy your staff meeting uh i will i will let you go thank you sir i'll talk to you soon a big thank you once again to Stephen Godfrey for joining the show. You can find him on Twitter at 38Godfrey. This has been Episode 7 of The Bucket Problem. Thank you to everybody for listening. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, working still on the Google thing a little bit, but we are sort of on there. Uh, we are on Stitcher. And yeah, subscribe, rate, review, Uh, We really appreciate you listening, and we will catch you next week.